The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, it is so appropriate that we sing the gospel as we finish Deuteronomy. We sing the, the gospel that is not a message of things we must do. It is a message of things Christ has done. It's appropriate to sing that in conjunction with Deuteronomy because that's where it's all going. That's what you've been pointing to with all of this. And we bless your name for it. Christ, come. Christ who kept all of the law. Christ who died to deal with and to remove the wrath due to our breaking of the law. Christ who rose triumphant and who reigns and is coming and who commands our destiny. Bless Your name, Father, for sending us Your one and only Son. We thank You and we ask You, would You fill this room? Would You send Your Spirit, Father, to fill this room? He, of course, already is here. He is everywhere. But would You send Him to fill this room in power, to open up Your Word to us and to teach us as we think back over this book and as we think forward to Christ, guide our thinking, guide our speaking, guide our listening. Would You lift up Christ in our eyes? Would You cause us to hope in this new and better prophet that You have sent and commanded us to listen to that we might find rest? Please do that. And Father, I ask You, would You meet, as You speak here, would you, would you speak in a hundred different languages? Would You speak to meet the needs of a hundred different people here? We're all coming from different places with different situations and different challenges. I have mine, my friends here have theirs. Would You speak the same message in different languages to meet us? Minister to us. You love to be known as the minister. You love to be known as the one who serves and lifts up and heals and changes and grows and helps and blesses. So would you do that? Would you show us that it's you? Would you cause us to grow in worship and in trust and in obedience and submission for our joy? Do that, I pray, Father. Son and Spirit. For the glory of Christ and for the good of your church, I pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the final chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, which is also the final chapter of the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses, and the final chapter of the life of Moses himself. And so this is a conclusion. But it's one of those conclusions that is also a beginning, that's pointing ahead to something that happens throughout life. Things close off, but they're actually pointing ahead. That's what this is. It has been one long day. 
all the book of Deuteronomy was spoken on a day. And we've been about a year and a half looking at it. It's been a long day. And the people have been poised here for quite some time. And it's a conclusion, but it's, it, but it's a beginning because they are looking across the river at the promise that's still out there. As the book closes, the promise is not yet. It's, it's still to come. And he's looking ahead, he's pointing ahead to that. And they, they've been paused here reaffirming the covenant. And, and Moses has done that, and now he's finished. So this is the conclusion. But the promise is still to come, yet not, not through Moses. He's done. This passage today, chapter 34, is, is in a sense a tribute to him. The epitaph written on his tombstone. It's, it's a tribute to him and simultaneously it is setting the stage for another. One who's not stated here but is known. And so it's, it's looking back and looking forward at, at the, the physical situation. It's looking back and looking forward at this person, Moses, and, and one who is coming, who, who would be a new and a better prophet like Moses. Moses is called the servant of God. There's one who's coming who's a new and better servant of God. Jesus. You know where this is going. You know, I don't need to keep secrets here. The end of the law. The one towards whom all of this has always been pointing. The one who brings the people into the fullness of the promise. Christ. That's where we're going to be going this morning. But let me read the passage. And then another passage right after it. And then I'll pass back through to make sure we understand the details before a couple of observations. Deuteronomy chapter 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses has laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Therefore, holy brothers, 
you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews chapter 3, the Word of the Lord. The text of Deuteronomy records how Moses left the people in the plains of Moab and went up into the mountains near there in the vicinity of the Jordan River. We don't know where he stood, but he obviously had a great view. It says God showed him all of the land, figuratively speaking, he couldn't actually from anywhere see all of the lands, way too big. But he sees it with his mind's eye. And notice he sees it as already. He sees it as fulfilled. They haven't gone in, they haven't conquered it yet, but he describes it with the names of the tribes. He looks and he sees to the north and kind of looking around back to where he's standing. He sees there Dan and Gilead. He sees not Canaan of the Philistines, but Judah all the way to the sea. God is showing him something. This is the land that I promised, and you see it now as if it has happened because it's a sure thing. I will keep my word. I will give this land. Look at this land, but you're not going in. Moses is not allowed to cross over because of his sin. We looked at this before. He's kept back. He sinned in the past, and he's going to die here before going into the land. But, but don't misunderstand. Don't think that because of this, Moses is on, on the outs with God or something. He's actually quite the opposite, extremely close, extremely intimate with him. Even in the verse that describes Moses' death, so bluntly, Moses is called the servant of the Lord, which is a significant title. It's not just saying this is a guy who served God. He is the servant par excellence. He's the one. He, he is the guy. God wants to lead His people. Moses is the one who, who leads them out of Egypt. Moses is the one who leads them in battle. He's the one who adjudicates all of their decisions. He, he is the leader. And He is the spokesman for God. He's the one who receives the Word from God and tells them what God's Word is. He's the prophet. And He's the one who intercedes before the people to God. He's the priest. He, he is everything. He is the servant of the Lord. Very closely tied to Him. And the intimacy that God has with Him shows up in another way in the passage. Moses died and He buried Him in the valley, but no one knows the place of His burial. Who buried him? Well, if you read 5 and 6 together, he is the Lord. There isn't anybody else there, which is why nobody else knows the place of the burial. God and Moses, this is a uniquely intimate time. God takes him up on a mountain to show him all of the land. And he dies, 
one guy dying in the middle of the wilderness, there's no need to bury him. But out of love and concern for him, God actually buried Moses. A kindness. And the people mourned Moses' death for the period of mourning. And then verse 9, Joshua the son of Nun, who had already been the chosen successor, steps up, full of the spirit of wisdom, because again, Moses had done it. Moses laid his hands on him. God gave the spirit through Moses. He steps forward. The people follow him. They obey Moses. They go into the land and it all works out. The torch is passed. Sort of. What 10 and 11 and 12 say is, ah, we took a step backwards with Joshua. Joshua was a, a great man of God. He was a great leader. But not like Moses. Not like Moses. We have not seen anyone like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. Not who knew the Lord, other way around. Whom the Lord knew. This is God who is uniquely, specially, intimately knowing Moses. God initiating this intimacy. We haven't seen anybody like that. With that kind of a relationship with the Lord. And we haven't seen anybody who's done the remarkable works of the deliverance of the people. Citing again all that God did through Moses to Pharaoh, to the land of Egypt. All the plagues. And no one like Moses, verse 12, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did before the eyes of all Israel. I have a little nuance there. There's a, there's a, this is important. There, there's a morphing of responsibility going on here in what is the last sentence of the book of Deuteronomy. In the last sentence of the law. We could go back and look at other passages in Deuteronomy and the language that's used here is very same words in the very same combinations used earlier to describe what God did. And here in the last sentence, Moses did it. God inspired this. He's saying, Moses did these things. Tremendous power ascribed to him. Starts out with all the signs and wonders the Lord did through him, and then at the end, Moses did this. And there hasn't been anybody like that since. Now, wait a minute, you might say. Didn't Joshua immediately rise up, and the Lord through Joshua parted the, the Jordan River at flood stage? And didn't Joshua step out, and the Lord through Joshua caused the walls of Jericho to fall down miraculously? I mean, some miraculous stuff that happened. God through Joshua... Yes, but not. Not like God through Moses. So unique that God can say, Moses actually did these things. We haven't seen anybody like that. No one, not Joshua, son of Nun, no one has arisen. No one's ever measured up. We have not seen the one that Moses told us in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, would come. Moses told us, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me from among you, and you must listen to him. And we haven't seen him yet, filled with signs and wonders and power out of his hand, and the word from God that we must heed hasn't come, period, the end. If you went to a movie that ended like that, if 
you went to a movie today, this afternoon, with the hero walking off into the sunset and the narrated voiceover saying, oh man, he was the guy. And he told us there was going to be another one like him. And we haven't seen him yet. You would say, boy, they left that set up for a sequel. He did leave that set up for a sequel. And Joshua, son of Nun, is not the sequel. No one is. There has not been anyone like him. Not Joshua, not Samuel, not David, the great king, not Isaiah, the great prophet. No one. Though Isaiah talked about the coming servant who would be in the line of David, who would reign as king, no one's come. This, it's, it's left right here saying there is one coming and it's always coming and coming and coming. And now He's come. Which brings us to the first of two observations that I'm going to make this morning. Moses was a great prophet, a great servant, but, first observation, God gives His rest to those who hold fast to Jesus. We have a new and better prophet, Jesus, and God gives His rest only to those who hold fast to Jesus, the Christ. We expect this. Most of us know this. We read the end of the story. We're a church. You know where this is all going. Moses enjoyed this. I mean, look at all the parallels here. Moses enjoyed this unique intimacy with God. God knew him face to face. He performed all these miraculous works. He had tremendous power. He's the servant, the prophet. So too Jesus, but even better. He's the suffering servant leading the people of God speaking to them the Word of God, offering up the sacrifice for them before God. Better all, better than Moses. Because of his identity, as Hebrews chapter 3 says, he's not just a servant in the house, he's the son over the house. He is God the Son. God come to earth. Moses was a man, he sinned and he died. Just like every other man. But when God comes to earth and takes on a man's body, He does not sin. And though He dies for a particular reason, He rises again showing, I'm not subject to that. In my person, I am unique. I am different. I am superior. Lord over the whole household. So that when Jesus speaks His words to us, He does not have to say, the Lord has said. He can say, I tell you. When Jesus performs the works that the Father gives Him to do, They are also His works, seen particularly in that whole deliverance motif that rises up in the last couple verses of Deuteronomy, pointing us back to what Moses did to deliver the people. Remember all that. It's it's remarkable. I mean, it, it it should stun us to look at the Nile turned to blood, Egypt covered with plagues, the firstborn killed. It's stunning. And it's all incomplete. It's all incomplete. Moses had enough power to bring them out, but he could not bring them in. 
He had enough power to bring them out of physical bondage, but He could not bring them into physical rest. He stops. There's a lesson in that for us. Not just the person of Jesus, but the ministry of Jesus is far superior to the ministry of Moses. In Jesus and in His cross, God is bringing His people out of spiritual bondage and all the way into spiritual rest. He gives His rest to those who hold fast to Jesus. Do you realize... Now, this is... I'm telling you things that you know. And I know you know that. But do you realize there is a rest? There is. There is a coming great rest. Sometimes we call it heaven, the eternal state, whatever whatever you want to call it. Eternity, resting with God, life in His presence. That is coming. Most of us probably most of this room, officially ascribe to that, but live oblivious to it. Watch how bent out of shape you get about stuff that happens here and now. And is gone. In light of the length and the quality of the rest, nothing significant is happening here. I mean, there's significant stuff happens here, but in light of, it's a vapor gone. But we get so bent out of shape about it because we don't really think there is a rest coming. Huge. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we won't have any fewer days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We sing that song, you don't actually think about it. 10,000 years. Nothing an eternal rest. There is one. And it has broken into time right here, right now. You can know it now. You can experience a taste of it now. Rest with God in your soul right now. Last week we were talking about this in terms of dwelling place. You can know it. You can live in the dwelling place now, even while you await the great dwelling place that is coming. He wants you to to live seeing this. To taste it. There is a rest coming. To whom? To those who hold fast to Jesus. That's the flow of the argument in Hebrews 3 and 4. It's not just coming automatically for everybody. To those who hold fast to Jesus, who cling to Him, who hold to Him. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 5, I already read this. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, testifying to the things spoken later. We have to listen to Moses because he's pointing us forward to something else. But Jesus is faithful as the Son over the house, and we are His house if we hold fast to the confidence that we had at first. Then down in chapter 3, verse 14, very similar thing. Hold fast. Hold it all the way to the end. Now Hebrews 
in 3 and 4 is primarily talking about the issue of salvation and the eternal rest out here. And he says, how do you know you're receiving? You will one day receive this coming rest. Well, how you know is you look at, are you holding fast to Him today, 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 today? Another way of putting that is, you've got to trust in Jesus, but people who trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. There isn't anybody who trusts in Jesus, but never actually trusts Jesus. Follow the logic there? To receive the rest, you have to believe. Believers believe. Perfectly, sinlessly? No. We still sin. But persistently we believe. And when we deviate into sin, we grieve and we turn back. Believers, those who receive the rest, are marked in their lives today, tomorrow, the next day, by a holding to Him. And when He slips out, we grab Him again. Hold. We persistently trust and obey. So, so the, the primary call in Hebrews 3 and 4 is trust and obey. And look at your life on the issue of salvation. You trust and obey today. You will receive the rest that's coming. However, we don't just need to only run to the end. We should think about it now here. Because what happens if you trust and obey Him today? You receive the rest today. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Surely he means this rest, but surely also he means rest right now. This rest that's broken into the world and that comes to you as you commune with him today. So we, we could talk about salvation, but we shouldn't only talk about salvation. We should talk about your experience of that real rest today, right now. He gives His rest then and now. He gives His rest to those who hold fast to Jesus. If you don't hold fast to Jesus today, I promise you, you won't experience His rest today. That's just the way it is. It's raining outside. If you walk out of the dwelling place, you will get wet. That's just the way it is. And so His call constantly, trust me today, hold fast to me today. And yes, that speaks about the future, but it speaks about today also. So church, I plead with you, seek Him today. Hold fast to Him today. Because you have to, yes, but for your joy. Find rest in Him today. Come to Him, all you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened and anxious and angry and frustrated, sad and afraid. Today, come to Him. Cling to Him. This is not just an intellectual issue. Because... Most of us, again, are going to say, well, sure, I believe all that. I'm not talking about intellectually, do you agree with it? We have a, a significant tendency to 
agree with a certain set of proper doctrine, but not hold that at 310 when that person insults you. At 311, as you're processing an insult, you might as well not be a Christian. Okay, now if you're at 312, somebody says, what's your official doctrine of blah, 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 then you could go back to that and cite it. But it's not actually in life. I'm not talking about intellectually agreeing with the truth. I'm not talking about even affirming it with your mouth. I'm talking about holding fast to it in your heart, which will always then come out in your hands and on your lips, in your feelings, in your desires. Church, this whole book of Deuteronomy has been about God forming a holy community so that He can give them rest. He's trying to form a people who would be His, who would hold fast to Him, and that He would carry into the land of promised rest. And as they held fast to Him with no other gods before them, they would stay in that land of rest in perpetuity, enjoying the blessing of God. But if they did not hold fast to Him, what would happen? Well, pain and discipline and eventually destruction. He gives His rest to those who hold fast to Him. Church, the same is true of us. Calls to holy, faith-driven obedience are not Old Testament-ish. They're all over the New Testament too. Be holy as He is holy. That's in the New Testament. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. New Testament. You are His if you hold fast to the hope. New Testament. What does it look like to... To hold to Him in faith and follow Him in obedience. Well, the the Ten Commandments tell us the the moral law, which still applies to us in the New Testament. Hold fast to Him. Trust Him and obey Him. In real life, not in doctrine class, I plead with you, people of God, be serious in your minds and serious in, in your day-to-day living about pursuing God, about holding fast to Him, not just because you have to, but because it's to your great benefit. He gives His rest only to those who hold fast to Him. Which should make us ask, okay, how do I hold fast to Him? Which is the second observation. We hold fast to Jesus by a mechanism of grace and promise in the power of the Spirit. We hold fast to Jesus as new and better prophet by a mechanism, that is by by a means or by a way, by a pattern. Searching for different words there, but it's a mechanism of grace and promise in the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw this over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. God calling for obedience, but constantly setting it in the context of what what sentence? There's a very common sentence. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Again and again and again through Deuteronomy. Significantly, right before the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 and 7. 
right before commandment one, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, have no other God before me. What's he doing there? What's God doing there? Not saying, I am the God who's going to get you. Therefore, have no other God before me. I am the God who brought... Look back. Look back at my grace. Did you bring yourself out of Egypt? No, you were powerless. I brought you out of Egypt. Look back at that grace. Look down at the ground you are standing upon. Who gave you this land? Did you defeat the two kings? No, I did. I gave you this land. Look at my grace in your life today. And I promise you, tomorrow I will give you the fullness of all that I swore to your fathers. Grace, grace, promise. What's he trying to do? He's trying to show in the past and present grace, who am I? I am a good God. I am a gracious God. I am a loving God. I am a God who blesses you beyond your wildest dreams. And when I promise this, I can be trusted. You can believe me that this promise that I'm I'm holding out there is good for you. Better for you than any other promise held out there. Trust and obey and walk into it. Hold fast to me. Don't let go and stray. That's a mechanism. Grace and promise. Now to be fair, there is also a mechanism of threat of destruction. That's also in the book. Because that's also reality. To let go of Him and to wander away does not put one in a neutral position. It puts one hostile to Him, contrary to Him, and He is God. So We shouldn't shy away from talking about that. The Bible does not shy away from talking about that. That's reality. But by far, far and away, God appeals to them by the mechanism of grace and promise which ultimately failed. Didn't work. I mean, you've read the Old Testament. It didn't work. They left Him. Why didn't it work? Moses told us. He tells them, you still do not have new hearts. I'm working the, the grace and mecha- grace promise mechanism But it's falling on deaf ears because you don't have eyes to see it or ears to hear it. You don't have new hearts. But we do. Blessing, Christian, we do have new hearts. The Spirit lives in you. If you're a Christian, the Spirit lives in you. It enables you to see what God is doing. It enables you to trust Him. We have to be clear on this. Theologically, and at the level of practical application, we have to be clear on this theologically. I'm going to talk about that, so you have to think with me a little bit here. Because there's something critical here that Christians often don't grasp. A lot of us don't grasp this. There are kind of two things that theologically we don't put together very well often. God clearly requires holiness. He requires obedience. He requires us to hold fast and have no other gods before Him, etc., etc., etc. 
I'll just say he requires holiness. And he's a God of grace. Christians often theologically struggle with how to put these things together. And which means we often go one of two ways. One way is that we give a lip service to the holiness requirement. Yes, God is holy. Yes, I should obey. Yes. However, in the name of grace, practically speaking, we dismiss the holiness requirement. And a wash in sin, feel fine. Hey, I'm forgiven. God's a God of grace. He probably would prefer that I don't do this, but he forgives me, that's his job. Some of us do that. I've had conversations with people in this church who do that, but that's not the predominant one. Some, some do that, but predominantly, particularly in conservative churches like ours, mostly we go the other way. And in the name of holiness, throw out grace. And what happens, we become very, very rigid, hard, maybe even harsh, demanding in areas of obedience. Yes, God's a God of grace, but clearly He's about holiness. And it feels righteous to be about this with this sort of tone. I'm using this tone on purpose. The, The rigidity, the hardness. God has said. And it's like we picked every hill to die on. Yeah, God's a God of grace, sure. But... It seems more righteous to some of us. It's certainly quicker. Raise your voice with your kids and you will get obedience on the outside for a little while. But it does not work. The mechanism of threat and punishment does not work to acquire the righteousness that God requires, the righteousness in the heart. But it seems good, so we go this way. We can't go to either extreme. We've got to put these things together theologically. How does the grace of God and His requirement for holiness work together? It works together theologically in what I'm calling this mechanism of grace and promise. Grace is not the excuse to sin. It is our strongest tool in the fight against sin and for holiness. The grace of God that saves us has appeared not just to save us, Titus 2 tells us, but to teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly living and to live upright and godly lives in this present age. That's the grace of God that is teaching us to fight against sin, helping us to fight against sin. How does it work? Well, God, by His Spirit in us, opens our eyes and allows us to see this grace that He has given us in the past. See the grace He's given us now in the present. And to see the lies for what they are, the temptations that are lies, to see them for what they actually are. He opens our eyes. Whoa! That is not 
to my benefit. That is not to my blessing. That is not wise. It is death. And what God has said is good and gracious, gracious, kind and blessing. And His kindness leads me to repent and follow Him. Hold to Him. Holiness. Theologically, that's how those things fit together. That the grace of God, seeing God in His grace, by the power of the Spirit, changes you on the inside so that you fight against holiness. You want to. You see it. You desire it. Theologically, they fit together like that. Practically speaking, then, what do we do? Well, what does Moses do throughout the whole book? He's constantly reminding them. He's couching every command in the context of God's deliverance and God's promise. So that's what we do in our lives. At 310, when somebody insults you, you've got a split second to decide where your mind runs. Christian, we must develop a habit of in that split second, your mind running to, grabbing hold of and holding fast to Jesus. Run to His grace. Run to the message of the cross. Or the phrase I've used again and again, preach the gospel to yourself. When this hurtful thing happens to you, never minding that many of the times the things that we get insulted by we're actually insulted because of our own sin, but let's suppose that actually somebody did sin against you, did something or said something. And your, your mind then has to say, you have to run at that moment. That hurt. God, that hurt. But I realize that that is nothing different from me. Different words, different tone of voice, sure, but not different from me. I am that person. I have done that. I have said that. That's who I am. And God, I see what You have done to that. You have not reacted in. You've reacted in. You sent Christ to the cross for that in me. You removed off of me my guilt for that. Forgave me. An object of Your wrath. You have now stood me up right before You in grace. Showered upon me blessing upon blessing upon blessing. This is all going through your mind. You've you got to develop the habit of running this through your mind in a second. At 3.10 in the afternoon. So that 3.11 is different. You have showered upon me blessing upon blessing upon blessing. You have become a dwelling place for me right now and a shield and a sword of my triumph. Yes, that is the attack that wounds me, but it has only come through your shield by your wise choice. What do you have in this for me? Oh, good and gracious God. I see in my mind's eye the rest that You can be for me now and that You are bringing to me surely tomorrow. 
thank you. Your love is astounding for me, a sinner. Seeing Him, His first love for you, you love. We love because He first loved us. Not in supernatural. Not we should love because He first loved us. We love. Love rises in us. It is how we are made. Love grows in us as we see His love for us. New Testament's replete with this. He, he changes us as we see Him. We behold His glory. We are changed. And so you see all of this that He is for you, all this that He has done for you, and change happens in you. Your life is not your own. You, you think that. You actually believe it. You bought me. What do you want from me? Oh, you want me to love you and love my neighbor as myself. The sum of the whole law. Yes. I will do that. Happily. Because you actually are happy, O Jeshurun. Happy in Him. Not just should be, but you actually are happy in Him. I'm talking about a supernatural spiritual thing. It's the promise grace mechanism in the power of the Spirit. Because you cannot make it happen. You can't make yourself happy. You can put before you the promises and the grace and say, God, change my heart. Grow me. Help me. He responds to that kind of humble submission. See your blessing. You see His love for you. And you are changed. And you love Him a bit more yourself. And you love your neighbor a bit more as yourself. That's He fulfills the law in you. By grace and promise and the power of the Spirit. I know there's a lot of theology in that, but it's really not that complicated. This is what Christians, this is what Christianity, this is what a church is. It's not that complicated. Maybe I've talked about it in a different way. We, individual people, and then we as a body, we, every moment of every day, live off God who is invisible. He is the air that we breathe, the food that we eat. He, he is what sustains us. How does that happen? Well, as we turn our minds and hearts to Him and are fixed on Him, and He is supreme in all of our thinking and in all of our loving and not all the stuff going on here. The supremacy of God in all things is what Christianity is and what our church must be. And with Him dominating what we're about we face all the stuff that happens in life happy, hoping, experiencing the rest and responding in love. It's Christianity. Holiness. By mechanism of grace and promise in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's essentially 
why we've spent a year and a half in Deuteronomy. Because if you remember the book of Acts, beginning of the book of Acts, preached that before this, the church stunned everybody in Jerusalem. So the church, that's Jewish Christians amongst Jews, so everybody knows this, theoretically. But one group stunned the rest of the group because they actually lived it by the power of the Spirit. They believed the promises of God, held fast to God's Messiah, the new and better prophet, which is pleasing to God, was a tremendous witness to the people and produced a church that was happy, filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. May we be that church holy by grace and promise in the power of the Spirit. Let me pray. God, I ask You, would You open our eyes and show us wonderful things in Your law. Show us who You are and who You want us to be and how You mean to get us there. Thank You for Jesus. The One in whose cross we find forgiveness. The One who gives us the Spirit. Bless Your name. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that You would grow in them holiness that You would raise up in them a strong desire to, to have no other God before You, the one and only God. And to therefore love their neighbors as themselves. This fulfills the law and the prophets. Would You grow it in us by Your Spirit, by Your grace, giving us today and one day forever Your promised rest. Do that in us, I pray, Lord. Amen. Draw
I could probably listen to more of that. If you want to stay, I'm, I'm going to sit here and pray that we become that kind of church. If you want to stay and pray with me, please do. But if you have somewhere else to go, children to pick up, bless you. Receive the benediction. If I'd give grace to you to make you individually this kind of a Christian, a person who is soaked through with His grace, who believes His promise and follows Him steadfastly. And may He give grace to us as a church to be that kind of a people. May He do that in our midst. Go in peace or stay and pray for that with me if you'd like. I'm going to pray up here. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.